I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, we are in this series in the book of Revelation today, so it will bring us up to the, the midpoint uh, in the book. Uh, but just before we start, I, I, I want to lower everyone's expectations. Now, <laughs> if, if in preparation for today, like me, you've been reading through uh, these chapters uh, then your head might be hurting a little bit. Uh, th- there's a lot in there. There's lots of details and images and symbolic numbers, and y- you can get lost in all of the details and confused as to what it all means, can't you? Uh, in fact, uh, D.A. Carson, Don Carson, who is one of the uh, most renowned uh, and great theologians of our time, he says this about the passage that we're going to be looking at today. He says, I find these here among the hardest in the book of Revelation to come to terms with in terms of what is taking place and the reality to which these things point. Now, if that's Don Carson, I've got no chance. Now, normally I would uh, blame Tim uh, for giving me the passage that he doesn't want to preach on, but I I have no one to blame except myself this time because originally he was meant to be preaching this, but because of a few things I asked if we could swap around and so... Here we are. So lower expectations today. Uh, If you came here thinking that you're going to have all your questions answered about what all these things in this passage means, you're going to be disappointed, okay? Um, But I also want to say this because although it's a tough section of Scripture and it's easy to become confused uh, by all the complications that you see in there, I want to point us back to the start of the book. So chapter 1, verse 3, and it's the, n- the name of the series uh, that we, uh, we've, we've named this, uh, this series, which is Blessed. And it's because right at the start of the book, in 1, verse 3, it says that, that there is blessing to be found for all who hear and take to heart what is said in this book. And so there is blessing to be found even in this uh, crazy passage like we're looking at today. Now, one other thing uh, to say before we we jump in, and that is to remind us, and particularly if you're here for the first time in this series, of what we're reading. We're reading the the book of Revelation, and the genre of the book of Revelation is what's called apocalyptic. Now, it's a a genre that most of us aren't very familiar with. It's not something we read very often, and therefore it's easy for it to be confusing and uncomfortable as we read it, Um, particularly when we read it in a place like the Bible, where we want to have clear answers to things. Uh, it's a genre that uses all sorts of imagery and symbols and, and visions and numbers, and often they're taken from the Old Testament. Uh, but we need to remember that as we're reading it, all of these images and details are symbolic. Uh, the images and, and the numbers and the visions point beyond themselves uh, to something else. And so when it speaks of great beasts with horns or or locusts with the sting of scorpions, we aren't meant to understand that there's going to be some creature like that that's going to appear in the future. They're they're pointing beyond themselves to other things. And so it's easy to be left confused uh, about what all these images mean. But what I want to say today is, Try not to get caught up in those details. That's what I've been trying to do this week as I've been preparing is try not to get caught up in all of the descriptions. Uh, Instead, what we need to do is take a step back uh, and see the big picture, see the picture as a whole. Uh, You know, as we've been saying, don't miss the forest for the trees. It's a bit like when, uh, you know, for those of you who have searched for a property over the last few years, you know, when you go onto like the domain or the realestate.com app, and as you're looking through all the stuff, the best thing to do is to go past the photos to the floor plan. 
you know, the floor plan right at the end? Because when you see the floor plan, that will orientate you to the rest of it. It will help you to understand how all the other photos fit in. That's what we're trying to do today. I want us to see the big big picture. I want us to stand back, see the painting as a whole, rather than zooming in on all the little brush strokes. Does that make sense? Good. There you go. Okay. Here's my question to get us started, to get us thinking into the passage. Here's the question. Is the judgment of God enough to bring someone to repentance and faith? Is the judgment of God enough to bring someone to repentance and faith? And so think about the street preacher uh, who shouts out about the coming of the wrath and the judgment of God. Or think about the fire and brimstone preaching of an angry pastor who almost seems to delight in speaking about what will happen to those who don't repent. Is the threat of judgment enough to bring people to repentance? Or is there something else that is needed? Because I think that's what this section in Revelation is about. And so let's jump in. First, to help us sort of orientate ourselves, I want to show us a little bit of the structure. And so chapters 8 to 11, which we're looking at today, is all about the seven trumpets. You would have heard some of those mentioned as Sam read it out. Uh, And this is the second of three cycles of seven divine judgments that are revealed to us in the book. And so firstly, last week, uh, Tim showed us the seven seals. And don't think the animal seal, think you know, a scroll with seven wax seals on it. We saw that in chapters seven, uh, sorry, six and seven. Today we're looking at the seven trumpets, and then in a couple of weeks' time uh, we'll be looking at the bowls which are poured out in chapters 15 and 16. Now each of these cycles depicts God's partial judgments in the first six and then God's final judgment and his kingdom coming on earth in the seventh. Now, a lot of people, as they read through the book of Revelation and see these three cycles, uh, think they come sequentially. And so as in the first one happens, the seals, and then you read about the the trumpets, so they come next, and then you read about the bowls, and so they come uh, last. But I don't think that's how we're actually meant to, to read it, because all three of these cycles of seven all end the same way with the final judgment. And so I want to make sense that they be sequential. Rather, I think the way we're meant to read it is that all three of these cycles are all talking about the same period of time, but all shown from different angles. Uh, that, Like a goal scored at a sporting match. I'm sure we've all been watching a bit of sport over the last couple of days, one in particular. And when, they, when a goal is scored, uh, there's lots of replays, isn't there? Replays of the same goal, but from different angles, showing how you know what what you saw from this angle and what you saw from this angle. But they're all talking about the same event, and it's the same that's happening here. All three of these cycles are talking about the same time period in history: the time between Jesus' first coming, his life, death, and resurrection, and his second coming, when Jesus will return to judge the world and bring in the new heavens and the new earth. Okay, still with me. That's the structure of the judgments. Now I want to zoom in a little bit closer and have a look at the structure of today's passage of these seven trumpets. Now, first we get the first four trumpets. Um, Sam read those out in chapter 8. They come really quickly, which is very similar to what happens in the first set of seven with the, um, what was it? the seals that we saw last week. Then there's more time taken uh, to describe the fifth and the sixth trumpet, 
a much more extended detail given there, which again is the same as with the seven seals. Then there's an interlude. There's a, there's a pause. And the, the, the focus changes from these trumpet blasts to the people of God, which is again like the seals. And then finally, at the end, you have the last trumpet, which is sounded. So there's the structure of the cycles. There's the structure of the, the trumpets in particular. One last thing that I think is going to be helpful before we jump in. Uh, today's about the trumpets. And so the question is, why the trumpets? Uh, what, do, what do the trumpets represent? Well, this is where I think it's helpful to have some Old Testament uh, knowledge on this. So have a think about it. If you, if you have any understanding or you've spent much time in the Old Testament, think back. Where else in the Bible do we hear about seven trumpets being blown? Can you think about that? Where, where in the Old Testament? Jericho, that's right. Uh, it is when Joshua leads the nation of Israel into the promised land and they march around the city of Jericho over seven days. They march around it. Then on the seventh day, the trumpets blow seven times and the walls fall down. The trumpets are a warning blast. They're announcing the coming of God's judgment. And the, the first six are warning that the seventh and final judgment is coming, which will usher in God's kingdom. Okay, with all that context, let's jump in. It'd be great to have a Bible open in front of you. If you have one, that'll be really good. Some of the stuff will come up on the screen as well, but there's so much to cover. And so if you've got a Bible there, have it open in front of you. Let's start with the first four trumpets. Now, remember, we're going to zoom out. We're going to look at the big picture uh, without going too much into the details. So I'm not going to read this whole section out again, uh, but... In verses 7 to 12 of chapter 8, you, you get the first four trumpets. Now, in the first one, there's a description of hail. In the second, you have water turning to blood. Uh, in the third one, you have water that's so bitter that it can't be uh, drunk. And in the fourth one, there is darkness. Now, again, if you've got your Old Testament hat on, think back. Uh, Any time in the Old Testament that this sort of reminds you of? The Exodus, yeah. So if, you, if you're familiar with the Old Testament or if you've seen the Disney movie, The Prince of Egypt, <laughs> more people seem to have seen that. You should spend less time on Disney, more time reading your Old Testament. Uh, but yeah, it reminds us of the, the plagues from the Exodus story uh, where God's judgment was poured out on Egypt for enslaving his people. Now, why did God send the plagues on Egypt? Well, it was to warn Pharaoh and the Egyptians that there are worse punishments coming, worse judgment coming, if they didn't repent and turn back to God and let the people go. But it also displayed God's power and his glory over the false gods of Egypt. But these first four blasts of the trumpet should all also remind us of another part of the Old Testament, of the first book of the Old Testament, of the first chapter, of the, the creation account, because what you see there in creation, what you see here in these first four blasts, are the, first, the four first major regions of creation. And so in the first one, you have the land. In the second one, you have the sea. In the third one, you have the fresh water. And in the fourth one, you have the sky or the heavens. But here, it's almost as if the creation is now being undone. Moreover, in the, the first four plagues here, you see the, the effect that it's having on things that us as humans look for to find security in this world. And so in the first trumpet, 
a third of the world's agriculture is destroyed, which would have caused all sorts of uh, supply chain chaos. The second results in a third of the fish being killed and a third of the ships destroyed, and so food and transportation is thrown into upheaval. In the third one, a third of the world's water supply is uh, made undrinkable, and so people end up dying from drinking the water. And then in the fourth one, uh, there is darkness of the third of the moon and the, the stars and the sun, and so, again, chaos. So much so that Nancy Guthrie, in her very excellent commentary on Revelation says this. She says, if we take the first four trumpets as a whole, they each seem to picture the impact of ongoing but not yet final judgment on the things that this world, uh, in this world in which many people find their sustenance and security. The trumpets are sounding an alarm, a warning of the danger of having only this world and what it provides and promises to depend on for security and satisfaction. Okay, that's the first four trumpets. Now, just before we go into the fifth and the, si the sixth trumpet, we get this spooky image. I don't know if you noticed it as, as Sam read it out. Right at the end, after these first four, you see it in verse 13. John says, I watched, I heard an eagle that was flying in midair call out in a loud voice, woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because the trumpet blast is about to be sounded by the other three angels. And so it seems like there's going to be an escalation now between the first four and the last three. And so now let's turn and look at the fifth and the sixth one. Remember that they are described in much more detail. Now, when you, you, see the, the, you see the fifth one in chapter 9, verses 1 to 11. Now, again, I'm not going to read it all out, uh, but let me try and summarize it. Uh, again, let's not get caught up too much in the detail, but let's zoom out, see the overall image that is given here. Have a look from verse 1 in chapter 9. It says, The fifth angel sounded his trumpet, and I saw a star that had fallen from the sky to the earth. The star was given the key to the sh uh, shaft of the abyss. When he opened the abyss, smoke rose from it like the smoke from a gigantic furnace. Now, the image we're given here is of this star, which is most likely representing Satan. Now, I say that because you get the same language here as Jesus uses to speak about Satan falling from heaven. And he is given a key to the abyss, which in verse 2, when it's open, smoke pours out from it. Now, what is the abyss referring to? Well, my best guess is this is referring to hell. And it's out of the abyss or out of hell that come these locust-like creatures with this power like scorpions to inflict suffering on people, except for those who have the seal of God on them. And it would seem like these locusts here are representations of demons, of demonic forces. And when you go back to the Old Testament, often uh, locust plagues are used to symbolize uh, demonic armies set against God. And it says they're allowed to torture people for five months, which I Googled it this week. That's the life cycle of a locust. And so it's not for forever, but it's for a period of time. So much so that uh, in verse 6, it says, During those days, people will seek death, but will not find it. They will long to die, but death will elude them. Now, a couple of things to notice about this fifth trumpet. Uh, firstly, 
Did you notice? It's God who gives Satan the key to the abyss and to therefore release these de- demonic forces. As in Satan is on a leash. He's only permitted to do what God allows. And so therefore it is God who sets the parameters and the, the limits about what these demons can do. It says there are, it was only to happen for a limited period of time. Uh, they weren't allowed to kill people and they weren't allowed to harm anyone who had the seal of God. God is still in control over this. Now, the first four plagues seem to be about the, the natural world order. The fifth plague now seems to be uh, d- demonic in nature. Then comes the sixth trumpet. And this is described in, verses th- uh, sorry, in verse, sorry, chapter 9, verses 13 to 21. So have a look at that. Have a look from verse 13. It says, The sixth angel sounded his trumpet, and I heard a voice coming from the four horns of the golden altar that is before God. It said to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. And the four angels who had been kept ready for this very hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of the mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000, I heard their number. Now, when you read of these four angels here, don't think good angels. Here, think demons. Most likely, it's the same as was mentioned in the seals with the four horsemen. Remember that from last week, uh, as described in chapter 6. Just a few verses later on in, in verse 17, they're described in the same way as riders on horses. And what we are told is that they had been bound But now God releases them in judgment. And as he does that, well, frankly, all hell breaks loose, doesn't it? And we are told in verse 18 that a third of mankind was killed by the three plagues of fire, smoke, and sulfur that came out of their mouths. Now, again, we need to remember that we're not... Sorry, you can get rid of that slide... They were not meant to take these images literally. They're symbolic. And so my best guess as to what these are actually talking about and what actually kills a third of mankind is not actually fire and smoke and sulfur, but it's something like lies and deception and and false teaching that these demons release upon the world as, as they're released. And so, again, Nancy... Guthrie says it this way. She says, John is using apocalyptic language to describe something that we don't always see as scary or troubling, deceptions and false teaching. Here, however, we get to see what false teaching looks like from the vantage point of heaven, which enables us to see just how deadly it is. Okay. Let's pause. Let's take a break for a moment. In fact, stand up, turn around, have a, have a shake. Come on, stand up, do it. Go on, shake it out. Seeing a few people drift. Turn around, do something. Okay, sit back down. We're halfway. We keep going? Okay, good. 
Okay, what have we seen so far? Well, in the first six, Trump, you're thinking halfway. We've already done the first six. What happens in the seventh? Uh, in the first six trumpet blasts, we've seen their effect. The first four seem to be directed uh, at the natural elements. And then the fifth and the sixth seem to have a more spiritual, more of a demonic uh, element to them with the release of these demons who torment and then kill people. So the question I, I want to pause and reflect on with us just for a moment is, what has been the purpose of these plagues that God has inflicted on the world? What was his purpose in allowing these things to happen? Now, remember I said at the start that the, the, the trumpets are symbolic of warning, of sounding the alarm. And so these plagues that God releases upon the world are meant to cause people to repent and to turn back to God. It's God's way of trying to get the attention of a world that has rejected him. As people see the instability of the natural world, the suffering, the death, and the horrors of evil and the demonic, it's meant to cause people to wake up to what the world is actually like without God and to turn back to him. But that's not what happens. Because at the end of chapter 9, you get this summary of what does happen. You see it in verses 20 and 21. It says, The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the works of their hands. They did not stop worshipping demons or idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, idols that cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual morality or their thefts. Now, twice here, we are told that they did not repent. Even after all of these first six trumpet blasts, these warning judgments, they don't repent of the things that they are doing. They don't repent of their worship of idols and of demons. Just like Pharaoh didn't repent when the, six, the plagues were brought upon Egypt. In fact, all it did was cause him to harden his heart against God. The purpose of, of these partial judgments was meant to wake up the world, to show it that trusting in the things of this world and to worship them, there's no security in those things, that they will fail you. And in fact, that behind them are darkened spiritual forces that will seek to cause you suffering and to kill and destroy you. But they don't repent. Because that would mean they would have to stop doing the things that they're doing. It would mean they'd have to stop worshipping the things that they are, are worshipping. But in the end, those things are worthless. They are idols. They cannot see or hear or walk. And so the question remains, well, what is it then that will bring people to repentance? If all of these trumpet blasts and, and the plagues that they cause don't cause people to turn back to God, then what will? Well, that's what chapters 10 and 11 are about. And like I said at the beginning, put the diagram back on the screen, before we get to the last trumpet blast, there is this, this pause, this interlude, where the focus moves from the trumpets to focus in on the people of God. And so let's have a look at that now. Now, there's lots of things that happen 
in these chapters and in all the descriptions that are given here. And I don't have time to dig into all of the detail again, but let me again zoom out, give you the overview of what happens here. Now, the first you see in chapter 10, and what happens here is that a mighty angel comes from God down uh, from heaven to earth with a scroll. Now, I'm pretty sure it's the same scroll that uh, Jesus opened in the last two chapters. Uh, And the angel tells John to take this open scroll and to eat it just like you see in Ezekiel in the Old Testament. And then he is to speak the message that is on the scroll uh, to a world that doesn't want to hear it. And the angel says, It will be sweet like honey in your mouth, as in it is a message of salvation, but it will be bitter in your stomach because it is also a message of judgment. Uh, The second then comes in chapter 11 in verses 1 to 14. uh, And... uh, next here, John gives, is given a measuring rod and is told to, to measure the temple of God. Remember, Sam read that bit out before, which is interesting because if you know anything about history, uh, Revelation was written in about the year 90 AD. 20 years before that, uh, in about 70 AD, uh, the Romans had destroyed the physical temple in Jerusalem. And so it didn't exist anymore. But I don't think that's what John is talking about here. Again, it's symbolic language. What is the, t- the temple representing? Well, it's representing the people of God. That's, that's the true temple. The New Testament continually talks about the true temple being the people of God. You see that in places like 1 Peter 2. And so it goes on to show how God's people will suffer and be persecuted by the nations. And says in verse 2, it says, They, that is the nations, will trample the holy city for 42 months. Now again, numbers are always symbolic here. What is 42 months? Well, here you get 42 months. In the next section, you get uh, 1,260 days. It talks about three and a half years. All three are the same. Uh, uh, 1,260 days divided by 30 is 42 months. 42 months is three and a half years. Uh, in apocalyptic writing, the number seven, we've talked about this a few times, is symbolic of completion. And so here, the three and a half years is God saying that this suffering won't be forever, that it's for a limited time, an incomplete time that this will happen. Then there's two witnesses. Now, why is there two? Well, some people have thought there's going to be two witnesses who are going to come. But again, I don't think that's, it's, not, it's more symbolic than that. Uh, the two witnesses in John's time, if you read the Gospel of John, uh, so anyone's testimony had to be the, by two witnesses to be credible. And so I think that's why there's two of them. But these witnesses are also described as, in the next verse, lampstands. Now, thankfully, in chapter 1, if you go back to chapter 1, verse 20, we're actually told what the lampstands represent. There you go. There's a couple of times in Revelation they actually explain it. Um, but in Revelation 1.20, it says, The lampstands are the seven churches. And so here again, I think this, we've had the, uh, the temple being the people of God. Now here again, these two witnesses aren't two individual people, but again, it's the, the church, the people of God. It's another reference to that. And these witnesses, the, the church of God, is to witness for the same period that they are suffering persecution, this incomplete time. But then verse 7 says this, says, now when they had finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower them and kill them. Their bodies will lie in the public square of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. 
For three and a half days, some from every people, tribe, language, and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. But after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet and terror struck those who saw them. Then they heard a voice from, uh, from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. Now, do you notice just how similar in amongst all that imagery this sounds to Jesus? Killed in Jerusalem, raised to life, ascended to heaven on a cloud. It's almost like John's going out of his way to show that the church is going to be just like its Lord, Jesus. But then there's this very surprising thing that happens. You see that next in verse 13. It says, At that very hour, there was a severe earthquake, and a tenth of the city collapsed. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Now, this phrase gave glory to the God of heaven, is only ever used in Revelation to speak about repentance, when people turn from sin and turn to God. And so how is it that people are going to be brought to repentance? Well, it's through the suffering testimony of the people of God, of the church, as they witness to a world that doesn't want to hear their message, that sees it as torment, but even as they suffer persecution and even death for the sake of the gospel. Now, I have a group that meets in my house uh, each week. It's, it's for uh, people who are new Christians, people who have come through Explore, people who aren't yet Christians yet. And uh, I ask them, what do you want to look at this year? And they say, well, what happens after Jesus? And so we're going to the book of Acts, which is the, the start of the early church. And that's exactly what happens as you read through the book of Acts. As the church testifies and witnesses to the Lord Jesus Christ, that his death, his resurrection, the salvation that is found in his name, that as they suffer and witness for the gospel, people are brought to repentance and faith. And the church grows. And the trumpet blasts of God's judgment alone, they won't be enough to bring people to repentance. But only when that is done in conjunction with the witness of us, the church even through suffering. It's in the midst of great suffering where the church continues to witness that the, the church grows. Think about around the world right now where the, the gospel is exploding in growth. Places like China or Africa, places where it is the hardest to be a follower of, of Christ, where there is great persecution and even death for being a Christian. These are the places where the gospel is spreading and growing. And it's always been like that throughout history. As Christians suffer and continue to witness to the risen Lord Jesus, the gospel goes out and people repent. And so like our Lord, our path is suffering now and glory later. And it's that glory that we see in the seventh trumpet. And so let's have a look at the final trumpet. Verse 17 says, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was, 
because you have taken your great power and you have begun to reign. The nations were angry and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead and for renewing your servants, the prophets, and your people who revere your name, both great and small, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. Now, do you notice that second line there? The one who is and who was. Shouldn't there be an extra bit there? And who is to come. But they no longer need to say this because this is the end. God has come. This is the final day. The trumpet has sounded. The kingdom of God has come. God has begun to reign and to rule. And the world is judged. And his people, the church, are rewarded. And so there it is. There are the the seven trumpets. There's a lot there, isn't there? There's a lot to take in. And so what are we... What are we meant to take? What do we take from this? What are we meant to make of this as we, we leave from here today? Well, I've got two things. And the first thing to say is that if you haven't already, heed the warning of the trumpet blasts. They are warning of God's final judgment to come. They are partial judgments. They are God's wake-up call to the world to repent and to turn back to him. That as you turn on the news each night and hear of the mess of this world, it's meant to be like a trumpet blast from God that's meant to cause you to see the world for what it is and to repent and to turn back to God. C.S. Lewis. Now, you thought you got through a whole sermon without a C.S. Lewis quote, didn't you? Couldn't allow that to happen. C.S. Lewis says this. It's a very famous saying of his. He says, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Everything we experience in our life, the good things we experience are a glimpse of God's goodness. But every pain that we go through, every suffering that we see in the world, every evil that we see is God's trumpet blast to us to repent and to come back to the God who made us and loves us to leave behind the idols of this world and to return to the true and the living God. And so can I encourage you, repent before the last trumpet sounds and it's too late. There's forgiveness and there is grace for all who do. God has done all that needs to happen through the death of his son for you to come back to the one who loves you and can satisfy you for eternity. The reason the last trumpet hasn't sounded yet is so that more people can repent and can turn back to God. And so will you do that? Or will you harden your heart to God and and his kingdom? And then second and finally, well, what is our role to play in all of this? What is our role? Because God is patient, not wanting anyone to perish, but giving time for all to repent and to turn back to him And so what's our role? Well, we're to be witnesses, witnesses to God, to open our mouths and to speak the gospel message to a world that often doesn't want to hear it. Why hasn't God blown the last trumpet? Well, it's not so you can go on that European vacation that you've always wanted to have. It's not so you can advance your career. It's not so you can find that special someone in your life It's so you can be a witness to God and his gospel. 
Now, jobs are good. We all need holidays. But this passage is a wake-up call to us. It's a reminder to us that our job, until Christ returns, is to be a witness of him, to witness to God and to his Lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ, so that others may also, like us, come to repentance and faith. That was the commission that God gave to his apostles, wasn't it? You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And likewise, we also who have come after the apostles are to be witnesses, to testify to the salvation that is in Christ, to call people to come back and to repent. And our passage reminds us that when we do that, there will be suffering, there will be persecution, This is happening right now around the world. From as far as I understand, more people have been killed in this century for following Christ than in any other century. And don't be surprised if it happens here as well, for a time. But God is still in control and he is allowing this and he is using the suffering of his people to bring others to repentance and faith. Now Jesus, the Lamb of God, He conquered his enemies by laying down his life and suffering for them. And so also us as the church, the followers of Jesus, are to lay down our lives also for our enemies so that they may see the gospel and come to him in repentance and faith. And so keep being witnesses to God and his lamb. Keep pointing people to the love and to the mercy that you have experienced from God and is open to all who will turn to him. But do it boldly. Do it with love. Be wise in the way you do it. And as you do it, endure the suffering and the persecution that you will go through. Jesus said, if they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. Knowing that God's in control and that one day his last trumpet will sound and the world will end and he will raise all those who have their trust in him to life with himself. And so let me finish with one final quote from Nancy Guthrie. She says, Fear of judgment is not enough to make a spiritually dead person alive. But in his wise plan, God has ordained the use of gospel witness of ordinary people, like you and me, who have found satisfaction and security in Christ. And they just can't keep from talking about it. So let's pray. Father, we thank you that as we look at your word today, even though there is so much in there, and as as we zoom out and we see the big picture, we see that uh, your warning blasts to this world, sounding the alarm that the final judgment is coming. Lord, we thank you that you have shown us your great love and we have uh, repented of that. We pray that many others would do that as well. Lord, we long to see those in our lives come to know the Lord Jesus. And so would you enable us by your spirit to be witnesses, to boldly proclaim your gospel of salvation in the midst of suffering and persecution even when people don't want to hear that. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.